Our scripture lesson this morning is from Romans 8, and I'll be reading verses 7 through verse 11. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. O oh, Father, the magnitude of these treasures is breathtaking. And I pray that there would be granted now, in these next few minutes, the capacity to feel something approaching an appropriate emotional response to this Glorious truth. Left to ourselves, we are dead, hostile, incapacitated to submit, let alone enjoy. But if you come, if you bestir yourself within and over, No one on earth can imagine what might come of this service for the glory of your name and the good of your people and the good of the nations. So come, help me, help us be faithful to your word in the preaching of it, hearing of it, and the heart and head responding to it. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Here at the beginning of verse 9, the issue is, what's different about you, Christian, from the rest of mankind? Human beings are divided into two categories. According to the Apostle Paul, they're the only two that really count. In verses 7 and 8, he describes them as in the flesh or in the spirit. Mind of the flesh or mind of the spirit. Those are the two categories. Doesn't matter about race. Doesn't matter about education. Doesn't matter about family. Doesn't matter about where you've lived or what family you've grown up in. What matters is mind of the flesh or mind of the spirit. And so he describes in verses 7 and 8 what terrible condition we're in if we have the mind of the flesh. That is, if we're merely human with no supernatural, divine, spiritual, Christ-penetrating intrusion into our life by grace. If we're just left to ourselves, what are we? Three things, he says. Verse 7, hostile and insubordinate to God. Second, we cannot submit to God's law at the end of verse 7. Third, verse 8, 
We cannot please God. That's who we all were or are until Christ broke into our lives and changed the mind of the flesh to the mind of the Spirit. So here he is at the end of verse 8, and now he says, but you, but you. And so I want to talk this morning about what's the difference between you, Christian, and those who are in the flesh, non-Christian. And oh, that the whole world knew these things, so that people didn't have the craziest notions of what a Christian is biblically. That's what we want to talk about now. There are five distinguishing features of a Christian from non-Christians in these verses, and one feature that binds us together with them. So that's our plan. What are the five things in verses 9 to 11, three verses, that separate us profoundly from all who are not Christian? And what is the one thing that binds us together with them? This is not exhaustive, neither on the binding nor the separating. So let's just stay with what's here this morning. Number one, what's the difference between you, Christian, Let me stop here and say, I know not everybody in this room is a Christian. And I thank God that you've come. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you are very welcome. And my prayer for you and my heart's desire for you is that you would rivet your mental faculties on what I say from God's Word this morning. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And it's faith that is the channel through which all these things that I'm about to say happen. I was so helped by God this morning in my devotions. He's so good to me in these ways. I just went over to Ephesians 3 to read one of the most familiar prayers. And it has that line in it, verse 17, Ephesians 3, where it says, I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. I said, yes, that's what I should say right at the beginning of the sermon. It is through faith that he dwells. And we're going to talk about the indwelling of Christ here. And so now I say to all unbelievers, as well as floundering believers... If you hear me talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit or the presence of the Spirit of Christ in your life and you wonder, how do you get in on that? How does that become real to you? I say in advance, it becomes real to you through faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word and therefore listen to the Word. And it may be that gently, reasonably, and freely you would be drawn to see Christ for who he really is and believe.
Number one, what makes Christians different? The Spirit of God dwells in you. In the middle of verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Dwell for a moment on the word dwells. Oikeo, from which we get economy. Oikos is house in Greek. Oikeo is to live in a house. Paul's the only person who uses this verb in the New Testament. And when he uses it of God or anything else, it's not like you are in a bus station or a cab or on the street, or in a church building. Dwelling is not that. Dwelling is what you do in your home. And so the implication here is sweet and rich and deep, a treasure to all believers, that the Holy Spirit of God has dwelt in you. And so I just pondered last night, dwell, 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 dwell. Lord, teach me, show me the implications of this word dwell. He didn't say, he could say, he he will say, he is in you. This is, is, but he didn't just is here. He chose dwell, live, inhabit as a home. And I thought there's Barnabas' room around the corner and it's empty. Till next week. This week. And maybe somebody would come to me on the street and say, I don't have a home. Can I live with you? Five years, ten years, fifteen years. And suppose I said yes and he moved in there. I thought, now, what would that imply? One, nearness. Three bedrooms and a bathroom just right there on one floor. Second, familiarity over time. Third, influence. And all that's implied in dwell. He's near you. And he'll never be different. Ever. He's near you. You cannot get away from him. You can't go anywhere. And it's not because he's waiting for you there. It's because you take him with you wherever you go. He's in you and inhabiting you as a home. Familiarity. Are you getting to know him? Are you nurturing a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Is he becoming increasingly familiar as a person in your life, influence, he's God, you're not. Influence goes all one way here. There are two other ways he describes this first point of the dwelling of God in you. One is in verse 9 where he says, you have the Spirit of Christ. And the other is in verse 10, Christ is in you. So he says it three ways. One, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Two, you have the Spirit of Christ. 
Three, Christ is in you. And that causes us to ponder, why the change of names? Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Christ, all one divine presence in you. What's going on there? What treasure is there in the changing of the names from clause to clause? Let me read you what Jesus said about this, which I think will help us. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, capital H, the Spirit. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Who do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about himself. It makes it really clear in the next verse. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. When Christ died, rose, witnessed, ascended to the Father, and poured out that which was promised, it was He who came. It is an amazing thing when you ponder the riches of the Trinity that are in this verse. It's worth hours of reflection. Because what Paul is saying, just like Jesus was saying, was... The Spirit is as much the Spirit of God the Father as He is the Spirit of God the Son. And not only is the one Spirit the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son coming from both and representing and reflecting both, but He so much communicates the Son that it is fair and fitting to say when He's there, Christ is there. And that's why he has these words that go back and forth. Revel in the treasures of the names of God. And revel in the nearness, too. Let me summarize those three. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You have the Spirit of Christ. Christ is in you. Number two, what is the second thing that distinguishes you from unbelievers? You are in the Spirit. Notice the difference. In the first point, I said the Spirit is in you. In the second point, I say you are in the Spirit. What does that mean? I take my cue in answering that question from verses 7 and 8, where the alternative is to be in the flesh. And we're told what it's like to be in the flesh. To be in the flesh is to be so in bondage to worldliness that we are insubordinate to God, will not and cannot submit to God's law and cannot please God. That's how great the thraldom of the flesh is, binding us, controlling us, influencing us, holding us fast, holding sway over our lives in the flesh. 
So now, what would it mean when he says, you're not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. And I would say, it means we have a new sway in our lives. We have a new power over our lives. We have a new decisive influence in our lives. And I use the word decisive, not total, because he has many competitors, does he not? So in this life, we've seen from Romans 7 and elsewhere, that though we are in the Spirit, meaning, I believe, in His sway, in His massive influence and in His decisive control, there are many battles to be fought with His enemies and His competitors. So the second difference between us and unbelievers is a new Sway, And when you connect the first and second difference between you and an unbeliever, look what happens. It's in verse 9. He connects them for us. He says, you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God is in you. Now, why is that connection significant? It's a treasure. And you know why it's a treasure? At least this is what it communicates so sweetly to me. It says, the sway, the power, the influence, the control of the Spirit into whose sway I have moved comes not from outside, but from inside. You see that? You are in the sway of the Spirit If the Spirit is in you, now why? Why is that so precious? Because he could have stayed outside and just barked commands at us. Do this, do that, be this way, be that way, and then watch to see if we would do it. That wouldn't be good news. That's not the way he brings us under his sway. That's the way the Ten Commandments brought us under their sway. In the New Covenant, that's not the way God brings you under His sway. He moves into you and from the inside brings you in to the Spirit, into the sway, into the power, into the control, which means it's free. That is, He is changing your mind. He's changing your heart. He's changing your desires and your values and your priorities so that you find yourself from the inside out longing and wanting and delighting in the things He delights in. And what is freer than doing what you want to do and not regretting it in a thousand years? Oh, the beauty of our salvation. Number three. What's the third thing different about you, Christian, from those who are in the flesh? Answer, you belong to Christ. Verse 9 again. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
Presumably then the reverse is true. If you do have the Spirit of Christ, you do belong to Him. And I ask, in what sense do you belong to Him? How are you His? What does that mean? How did you get to be His? What does it mean to be His? Belong to Him. There's one other place where Paul brings together habitation language, dwelling in us, and ownership language. It's 1 Corinthians 6. Let me read it for you. 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Did you hear the two ways that we are made his? Habitation and purchase. There was a time in our country that there was land in the West. And if you wanted to own it, all you had to do was go live on it. Homestead. And it's yours. So I think, how did he get me? How did he inhabit me? How did he take me for his own? There are two answers, not one. One by itself might be insecure. The first one is, he bought me. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 6. His blood he shed that he might possess you for his own. And then secondly, he homesteaded your heart. I'm going to buy them and to make sure they are mine forever, I'm going to move in now and not at the resurrection. And therein lies a massive security. And meant to, and meant to, the down payment he's called of the final inheritance. Now, there are two more differences between you and the unbeliever. And before I give them, let me tell you how you're like the unbeliever. Because I don't just choose to do this because it seems like a good thing to do. I choose it because there it is at the beginning of verse 10. Now, if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin. This is a concession to your humanity. You're going to die. Now, why is that significant here? It's significant because these truths that I'm speaking and that he's writing are so phenomenal. That if we weren't so secularized, if we lived in another age where we weren't so skeptical, we would probably be tempted to overinterpret it and think that we could take wings and fly and never die. I mean, do Elijah on me, thank you, because the Spirit is within. And he warns us not to overinterpret our salvation. A lot of people 
overinterpret salvation and claim things for this age that are not designed for this age. They're designed for the resurrection. And one of them is not dying. You're all going to die. You are. Unless Jesus comes, which would be wonderful. And he doesn't want you to be shocked by that. In fact, he says in verse 23, we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we groan waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We got to wait. You might say, I want to wait. I want it now. I want it all now. Body and spirit. He says, sorry, God saves you in stages. Not all at once. And so, we're like everybody else in the world. We're going to be ground up and spit out by this enemy death. And it will be ugly for some and easy for some. And that you're a Christian makes no difference. I'm 55 I've buried hundreds of people and I've watched them die and the best sometimes die hardest. There is no respecter of persons in this enemy and God hands us over to him for his sovereign purposes. And they are good for us. All right. Now back to how you're different. And I think he writes the other two now. Here come two more in verse 10 and verse 11. Two more ways that distinguish you. And I think these two are the most precious probably for Paul because of the threat of that similarity between us and the world and how horrible death is. And so he says in verse 10, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Notice two ways that your spirit is made alive and kept alive. Notice he's distinguishing now body and spirit. And I know there are some versions that treat this as the Holy Spirit. If you bore that down to the root, I think the meaning would probably be the same. But I think the NASB is right here. Your spirit is alive. Your body is dead. It's mortal. It's going to die. But your spirit is alive. It is not mortal and it is not going to die. Ever, ever, ever is your spirit going to die. That's what he's saying. And the way it is secured, this life, is at the front of the verse and the end of the verse. First, let's take the end. Because of righteousness. No, I'd love to take you on all the links between righteousness and life through chapter 5. To show you that it's the gift of righteousness that secures the triumph of life in you now and forever. The righteousness of God in Christ is my life. I could not be quickened and brought alive had he not become a righteousness for me. And now, look at the front end of the verse, 10. If 
Christ is in you. So I have a righteousness provided for me, and I have a presence of God put in me. So you could say, Christ's perfection purchases my life, and His presence secures my life. Doubly, He's after me from both sides again, as with habitation and purchase. So, Christian, know this. Someday, if God doesn't send the Son sooner, there's going to be an agonizing rending between the spirit and the body. We were not made for this. That's why it's frightening. That's why it's an enemy. We were not made for this. Paul spoke in 2 Corinthians 5 about being naked, meaning his body stripped off of him. And he said, I don't want to be naked. I want to be overclothed with life, meaning, come Lord Jesus. But then he said, all right, if I must be naked, to be apart from the body is to be at home, naked. With the Lord. And that is better. But not ideal. God didn't make the body to throw it away. Jesus didn't pour out his blood to redeem the body. To throw it away. This rending between a redeemed living spirit. That every Christian in his room enjoys right now. Was not meant to be severed from a mortal body. But it will be. It will be. For a season. And now verse 11 in closing. Here's the fifth difference between you. Let me give you the first four so you're up to speed. One, the Spirit dwells in you. Two, you are in the sway of the Spirit. Three, you belong to Christ. Four, your spirit is alive forever. Now, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus or raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your Yes, mortal, dying, dead bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will finish it. At the last trumpet, when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised, and this mortality puts on immortality, and this perishable puts on imperishable. Then will come true what is spoken, death. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? He's going to put you back together someday. I don't care whether you were cremated, or whether you got eaten by worms, or whether you just died five minutes before he comes. You're coming back together. And that body will be beautiful, and it will be whole, and it will be perfected, and you, body 
and perfected soul will live in the presence of Christ forever and ever and ever. And you will be able to do this. Not just have a spirit. Christian, know whose you are. Unbeliever, come. can't buy it. You can't earn it. All you can do is embrace it. It's a gift. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells, you might have hope. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.